on today's episode, Why Your PHT Isn't Getting Better with Mareka Lowe. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. There's such a a small group of online physios out there. I feel like we just need to band together and really support each other. So I was delighted to have Mareka Lowe on today's episode. And I interviewed her last year, and this is the grab from that episode. We do a deep dive. Mareka was fantastic at listening to a few of the past episodes on the Run Smarter podcast and found some like gaps in knowledge or stuff we haven't necessarily covered yet and decided to share her five tips of why your proximal hamstring tendinopathy is not getting better. She has had um, a lot of experience with working with PHT sufferers and it just allowed for a very insightful, very informative chat. So like I said, repurposing this episode again, but it needs to be on this podcast and I'm excited to dive into the chat. So here is Mareka. Mareka, thanks for coming on and taking the time to part your wisdom on proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Let's just start with um, your career, how, how your physio career is uh, transformed into where it is now. Okay. Thank you for having me on the show, Brody. So yes, I started life as a physio in South Africa and then moved to the UK for a couple of years, thought, oh, can't stand the weather. So went back to South Africa <laughs> and then actually realized that no, the UK was actually quite nice. So went back to the UK in 2010 and did a master's in sports injury management. And then after that, I really kind of honed in on sports injuries and stuff. And I was lucky enough to start work in a clinic with a multidisciplinary um, practice where we had one of the top UK um, sports physicians, Professor Nick Webborn, working with um, or in charge of the clinic. And yeah, for the last 10 years or nine years, I've worked there and it was just so good for learning about different sports injuries and stuff. And then in 2014, I started my online physiotherapy practice, which at that point, all physios I spoke to thought I was absolutely nuts for doing physio online. Um, And it was quite a slow burner because people were used to that physios have to touch you to get you better. And, but the more the research came out, it showed, no, actually our bodies can heal themselves. All you need is the right combination of rest and exercise. And finally, the message has gotten through to people and the business have become a lot more popular and the service also with people not wanting to travel for physio really. And of course, at the moment with the current conditions in a lot of countries, you don't have online physio, uh, you don't have physical physio available. So online physio is now the go-to for loads of physiotherapists. So yes, and here I am now I've, I've pretty much specialized in sports and online physiotherapy. Great. You're preaching to the choir here when you're talking about the benefits of online physio. <laughs> um, <laughs> but to do it from 2014, like I think I first heard about online physio maybe two years ago and um, 
well, I've just seen like this emergence in the last maybe 12 months of different clinics transforming or changing how they're practicing. Did Had you seen much online, um, like even just any health professional doing online stuff back in 2014? There, so when I Googled it, there were two other sites that I found. And the one was, um, they were both Australian sites. So the one was a physiotherapist and she's still working. She specializes a lot in, um, I can't think of her name now, but she specializes a lot in um, office workers and things and adaptations like that. And her website was already up and running and she was providing a really good service at that point. Was it Karen the other one, Yes, that's her. Okay, cool. Um, and then the other one was more like a, physiotherapy guide site so it wasn't actual consultations but they you could subscribe to them for step by step how you treat different injuries um yeah so those were the only people going at that point and i have to be honest the reason i wanted to start it was i love traveling and the more i looked into it the more i realized that i could not really travel with my profession because every country you would need to register with their health profession councils and that usually entailed writing an exam in their language in physiotherapy and I think you also know that once you've been qualified for several years you kind of forget what you did in the hospital phases if you're just <laughs> doing sports physio and stuff so yeah I wasn't keen to study again yeah half um, the stuff I've learned isn't relevant anymore <laughs> yes exactly and that's why it's so important to keep up with the research yeah. And so we decided to come together and talk about proximal hamstring tendinopathy. And before we dive into your five key points that you've written down, um, why is there a need to address proximal hamstring tendinopathy and why is it such a problem for runners? I, I know a couple of answers myself, but uh, what would you say? Mm, so the problem with this condition is that it's probably one of the more pesky types of tendinopathies to get better. And it can really drag on for years if people don't get the right management. So the reason I've actually, in my earlier years as a physio, I try to avoid these patients because it can be so difficult to help them. But since I've started my online practice, I've somehow managed to I made one video that was about proximal hamstring tendinopathy on YouTube. And it just seems that every single person have watched this video and somehow they've started contacting me. So I've, I've had to become a bit of a specialist in treatment of this online. And it's just so heartbreaking when you hear the stories of these people that they've, they've had this pain for so long and it's really, it's not just affecting their, their, their running, it's also affecting their social lives because they can't sit. So they can't go to meals. They, they kind of dread having to go to parties because they know how frustrated they're going to be. They, they can't even drive their children to school properly because they can't really sit comfortably. Mm -hmm. um, it makes a whole lot of sense because, like you said, sometimes it can drag on for years. And if you, go, if you put on a um, YouTube video explaining it and some treatments, like the people who are watching that that have chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy, they, they get quite desperate. And so mm. I guess reaching out to you is um, the next step. Yeah. And, and it's quite shocking how much bad advice is out there as well. And you mentioned it in your podcast. Um, I think it was the one about compression that you did, um, where you mentioned about the compression. Which one was that? The, the second podcast possibly um, about how a lot of people get told to stretch. And it's amazing how many of these people who contact me, who's got ongoing pain, who's 
given hamstring stretches to do and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a flip side to to getting advice from from YouTube is that you can get totally wrong advice as yeah. well. And I think it's like people's natural inclination to do because sometimes when things feel sore, they can also be perceived as tight. Like if they yes. straighten out their leg and it feels painful when you stretch it, that can kind of yeah create that perception of tightness. And, okay, it's tight. It needs to be stretched, which... Yeah ends up making things and it, worse. And it can, it can feel satisfying to feel you nailing the bit that's hurting. True. Very true. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's dive into your five things that you have written down. Uh, so what's the first one? Okay. So I looked at the main reasons or the main things that I find in my patients when they contact me and say, I'm not getting better. And these are the five main things that I usually find they're doing some of maybe a combination of them. So the first one is that they're not addressing the compression component of the injury. So in podcast number one, that you, number one of the tendon talk that you had, you spoke about how compression contributes to tendinopathies. And especially for the high hamstring tendinopathy, it's the compression around, of the tendon around the sit bone. Now, it's not just that they're constantly compressing it through the day. So um, it's sometimes also that they're not actually doing exercises that strengthens the compression capacity again or builds the, the um, compression capacity. So the four main things under compression, I would say, is that they're continuing to sit um, for way too long or they're continuing to sit in positions that really aggravates the tendon. So you have to address your sitting position. And if you can't sit comfortably, you should think about getting a sit-stand desk, that you go between sitting and standing, that you don't think of sitting capacity as the same as your running capacity. So you wouldn't expect to be able to run a marathon on a sprained ankle. And the same thing, that tendon only has the capacity to deal with so much compression from sitting in the day. So you need to slowly build that up, but not kind of overstep the mark by sitting for long periods when it's not ready for it. Then the second part of compression that they may have in their day or in their program that can be causing trouble is like I've just said about the stretching. If they're doing any hamstring stretches or piriformis stretches or glute stretches, all of those type of things I find can add compression to the tendon that it's often not happy with. And if it, even if it feels better at the time, it may make it hurt a few hours later. Then the third place where they can get compression that can irritate the tendon is if they are trying to do um, different things in their running that's not quite good for it at the moment so if they they're giving big steps or they're running uphill and i think you mentioned all of that in your podcast as well because the bigger you separate your legs when you run the more you'll get compression of that tendon over the sit bone and then lastly it's not just about avoiding compression you also actually have to build the the capacity of that tendon to cope with compression loads again so um, often some of these patients because they've heard that they need to avoid compression I've gone and avoided all types of compression for months and months and months. So the problem with that is that you're never going to make your tendon used to being squashed again. And you have to do that because you want to sit on it. So it's important that your rehab program actually also includes some exercises that does cause graded compression in the tendon and that you build how much compression and load it takes in that compressed position over time. And that will feed into my next um, point as well in a minute. Okay. I'm glad you addressed that um, 
that it needs to start tolerating compression because that was going to be my next point I was going to make. People, once they, even once they get better, they then have fear of sitting mm, and absolutely. they say, yeah, oh, because the long-standing hamstring tendency is so hard to overcome and it can be so traumatic and debilitating for a lot of people, once they're better, they obviously don't want that to happen again. And so they realize that compression was bad for it before and then they're like, oh, I'm fine now. I just never sit. And, it, you know, you still need to get on with everyday life. Yes. It's, um, it's encouraging or like you try and really um, make sure that they're, they're fully understanding that the tendon can undergo compression. It's healthy for the yes. tendon to undergo compression. But like anything, we need to build up its tolerance in order to, to take that um, because fear can be another uh, psychological component needs to be addressed as well. Exactly. You did mention, you're, uh, you're jumping to my point number five. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry. I said that. <laughs> um, I'll go back to that sitting part that you're talking about because that mm. is a big part. Um, you did mention a sit-stand desk. If someone is in the car or if they're sitting at home and not in the office where they have a sit-stand mm. desk, is there any other like modifications we can do in order to avoid compression? Absolutely. So one of the best things I found actually in the past for myself, because I always tend to get these injuries myself to an extent as well, um, is if you can find a, a soft, really soft, like a feather cushion, or um, for me, my feather jacket worked really well. And the reason those things work well is because they're so pliable and you can really change where you take the pressure with that. And Often, if you don't actually sit directly with your sit bone on it, so it's not that you're sitting on a soft surface, but you create a little gap for it. So if you have a cushion, you don't push it all the way under your bum. You leave a little gap. Sometimes that can be quite comfortable. But otherwise, just something really, really soft like a feather cushion or jacket can be really good to sit on. Yeah, because you're dissipating the load um, underneath your sit bones instead of having that just like direct compression through that bone okay very good um and back to the running you mentioned like over striding or maybe running uphill Mm. can put compression um i haven't seen it too often but what i've heard is also combining that um over striding with a forward like trunk lean like people who do lean with a little bit of a um a forward lean in their torso if they combine that with overstriding that can also create a lot of compression um it's not a common running pattern that i see too often but um yeah it can definitely put a lot of compression through that tendon absolutely and it's it's quite difficult to to change your running style if you're used to it so i just i just find that telling my patients to just give really short strides at the beginning works quite well to get them to to not have that overstride yeah, great. And you're also maintaining um, some strength in that tendon if you're not just completely backing off and you're still maintaining some running and it might just take some mm. slight adjustments. Uh, so that's a good thing for the, the health of the tendon as well. That's a very good first point, dealing with compression. I think it's a key one because a lot of people, especially in the early stages, they don't directly link sitting and compression with their pain. They usually mm. associate it with the actual running itself. So um, identifying that factor straight off the bat is very good, I think. Um, is there any other points you want to touch on with compression before we talk about your second, um, your second point? I think it's just to kind of summarize that point in that um, under compression, you can say avoid excessive compression at the beginning, but make sure you build back your capacity 
over time with regards to that. Don't just for always or forever avoid decompression. Good. It's the same thing as if you have um, like a running injury and you just stop running. It's, you haven't gone yes. over the injury yet. You just haven't um, addressed the, the aggravating factor. So it's not a very good rehab if you get injured running and you just completely back off. So very good point. Yeah. Building up that load tolerance once again. Okay. Point number two, what do we have there? Okay. So it, it's exercise choice. So I'll get these runners in and they will say, I've done all the strength training. I've done these exercises, blah, blah, blah. And then you, you listen to them and you go, Oh my soul. Yes, there are <laughs> exercises you can use for this, but probably a few stages later than where you are at the moment. So what people often do is they read about, you've got to do high load training for tendinopathies and you've got to do, you know, squats and deadlifts and everything. But yes, you have, but at the right stage. So a lot of the tendons, if they're really, really sensitive and aggravated, if you're going to start with a heavy squat or deadlift, you will make that pain a lot worse. So it's, and you spoke about this as well, about how to start with, um, your isometrics and things and positions where there's not a lot of compression on that tendon. We're actually just getting a bit of blood flow and just a bit of activation. Um, so I would definitely say with your exercise choice, it's got to be at the right range of movement that you move, work it. And also the weight needs to be relative to what the tendon can take. So heavy may mean a different thing for your muscles. If you're somebody who's really strong, then a heavy weight may not be heavy for your muscles, but it may actually be quite heavy for the tendon because the tendon may not be strong enough to cope with it at that point, or it may just be too sensitive. So the exercise choice is really important. Okay. Um, do you have like in the, uh, I guess the stage numbers, is there, if someone's not too sure about the, the stages you mentioned, one of them being out of compression and then two being within compression, um, how do we know, what stage we should start with or how do we know when to move to the next stage? Yeah. So it's really simple. It's, I always just, you test. So how you test is you start with the easiest thing where there's absolute no compression. So if we think of a glute bridge where, or a hamstring curl where you're lying on your front, where the tendon is not being compressed in the bone, but you can load it. If it's happy with that, then you, you think, okay, let's test how happy this is with compression. So you do a free squat. So no weights, you just do a free squat and you see at what level of that squat do I start feeling some discomfort? And you notice that. And then I usually get my patients to work to that level where they just start feeling the discomfort first until they've got their full range through that. And you can even load them pretty, um, you know, progressively heavy in that range of movement that's limited because that often gives us the rest of the range. So if you then want to start a deadlift, I would always test the deadlift first without any weight. And then if it's okay, you add little bits of weight, you know, as you go along. So yes, we want to get to where they work really hard at an eight rep max eventually, but I always start with a 15, 12 to 15 rep max first, preferably get them comfortable with body weight first and then progress on to the rest. But it's a very step by step program because to be honest, these injuries take a long time to get better. And there's no use in rushing into it and progressing so quickly that you flare the pain up because then you not only have the tendon to deal with that's sensitive, but you also have the patient who then is in a really low mood because now their pain is worse. 
Mm. I think the running population is the most impatient population out there. And (laughs) as soon as they get a, an exercise that is now pain-free, they want to jump three levels above what they were doing. And like you're saying, as long as you trust the process and you are patient, you do have those expectations laid down. I think a lot of the studies that are out there that do, um, or that have found really good outcomes, they study it for like three months minimum uh, when it comes to loading the tendons. So make sure that you're patient and you are building strength. Um, Okay, so you've, you've talked about making sure that the tendon itself is not undergoing too much pain during the exercise. You want to go through a certain range of movement just to that point of discomfort, maybe back off a bit before then, but you might be able to find that you can apply quite a heavy load through that range and get that same amount of discomfort. And that can be quite encouraging for people to start mm. lifting slightly heavier, but it is on a individual basis and it will be on a uh, symptom dependent basis. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Any other points with um, exercise choice? Um, just that technically there really aren't any exercises that's bad for it. It's just about implementing it at the right speed and in the right way. Um, because I've, I've also, I need to go revise some of my videos because I've had people say, I saw that you said that deadlifts are really bad for it. So I've stopped doing it and you go, oh, I really don't think I said that, <laughs> but probably <laughs> the way that I said it, it may have come across like that. Yeah. So, and it comes down to, yes, deadlifts compresses the tendon, but you want to make it used to it eventually, but at the right level. Yeah. Some of the um, like low level hamstring temp- tendinopathies, if I have a strong runner that comes into the clinic and I have a look at their capacity and they're getting a high hamstring tendon pain, but you look at their strength and they're actually quite strong and symptoms actually really mild. The first thing you could do is probably compress it. The first thing you could do exactly. is probably take it through some deadlifts. Um, I like this. I don't know what they actually call it. It's kind of like a Nordic hamstring drop, but you're just flexing at the hips and yes. you're just like dipping like a dipping bird um, can put a tremendous compression through that tendon. But if someone's really mild symptoms and really strong uh, can be the can make all the difference and can actually re- return them back to running really, really quickly. So like you yeah, said, and it you all know, depends. That actually is exactly what I was trying to say with the last point of my, with my first point where I said that you must make the tendon used to the compression because if you get those runners who's gone through everything, but they still have that mild pain and you look at their program, they often don't have any exercises in there like the deadlifts that compress the tendon. And that's why the pain is still going on. And if you just make that change, you're absolutely right. Then they get back to running. Perfect. Okay, let's move on. Point number three. Um, it's about dosage. And this is something that I love the, the line you used in your second podcast about tendons, where you said deciding how many times you should do an exercise and how often it's, it's more an art than a prescription that you can, can prescribe to each person. Definitely. Because it is absolutely an art. You've You've got to take every person recovers at a different rate. Depending on your age, you're going to recover at a different rate than what you did before. Females, depending on our hormone levels, we recover at different rates. So it's really important to look at where you schedule your exercise. And then also, if you're still running and you're running quite frequently in the week, where you schedule your strength training with 
in relation to the running that you don't overload the tendon because tendons do take longer than muscles to recover. So if you're doing heavy strength training, they usually need 48 to 72 hours to properly recover from that. So you've got to think about the training you do after that. Otherwise, you'll just add to cumulative overload. Um, so that's a really important point that please don't look at somebody else's rehab, what they're doing and try to mimic that because it will very likely not be the right thing for you. Yeah. And a thing I can add to that is like when it comes to a tendinopathy, it actually, the severity is on a spectrum and mm. you can have just these really low load reactive tendinopathies or you can have a really um, severe degenerative tendinopathy. Someone who's um, had it for quite some time is really painful so that will depend or that will affect the dosages as well. And um, we were talking about Tom Goon before and he has a really nice saying, it's always, um, it's always about uh, reasoning, not a recipe. And so yes. there can't just be one dosage for an individual um, and it all just takes a bit of trial and error. I found in the practice, we sometimes had um, newly qualified physios shadow us and then they would ask me, so why did you do that? <laughs> With Stansfield, I really don't know. I just felt like the right thing. And then you'd have to stand and think, why did I do that? What was my clinical reasoning behind? And then you go, oh, yes, it's because this person was like this. And, that. and then you realize that there are so many decisions that go through your mind with regards to sensitivity of the tendon and everything, like you said, um, that, yeah, there's never two patients who gets the same thing. Yeah, we can kind of, through like clinical experience, hit, like a similar ballpark that you want to um, based yes. on like clinical experience. And, uh, but you do say to the patient, I know I like to give a dosage to a client and say, all right, but we need to pay attention to symptoms during you need to pay mm -hmm. attention to symptoms afterwards and symptoms the next day, because it might need to fluctuate. We might need to add more on. We might need to take a bit off. Um, your tendon is going to not only um, be different to everyone else, but it also fluctuates itself. Like yeah. Um, yeah. one part of the week might be different to another part of the week based on how much sitting you're doing and how much bike riding you're doing, et cetera. So it's, um, yeah, it, as long as the client is aware of the symptoms and how to respond to certain symptoms mm. uh, can really put them in that sweet spot. Yeah. And don't you find with your online clients as well that doing the whole process online actually makes it easier to get that interaction and that response quite quickly. Because what I found with my patients when I saw them in clinics, that they would not contact me until the two weeks later that they came back in. And then they would tell me about this massive flare up that just escalated. And it's like, why did you not call me? <laughs> and yeah. Whereas with the online stuff, because they're online and they know they can email you, you get a message immediately. You can immediately say, oh, let's just adjust it like this or this and this. And it averts that. Absolutely. Um, so you have to be able to adjust things. But yes, like you said, education of the patient that they actually know to notice that. Yeah. I have been like of late um, communicating with my online clients, making sure I'm like, please like uh, interrupt me, disturb me throughout any time of the day, any day of the <laughs> week, make sure that you are fully informed. And if you have any yeah. questions, let me know because if there's um, confusion or you're not too sure how to proceed, I'd rather... Um, adapt on the dime rather than going yeah, through a week of them fumbling through symptoms and um yeah which is why online is perfect because it's just a um, a text message or an email away exactly and at that point it's often as easy as a yes no answer 
Whereas if you wait a week and everything's escalated, then it's a nightmare because then it takes a whole session to figure out, okay, where do we go from here now? Because now we've got a really painful tendon. Yeah, so no, I love, I love that. Um, with dosage as well, one thing I want to add, what are your takes on uh, the speed of the exercise? I tend to be in the, uh, a fan of the slow, really controlled for the quite a long period um, until I nearly get them. It's when we start getting back to full running that I, I start getting them to do faster stuff. But for the first period, especially the first, let's say three to, to four months, I probably like them very slow exercises. Yeah. I think it's, it's a good thing for um, the clients to wrap around their head is the, the load the like exponential requirements of the tendon once speed is introduced and you can go really heavy and really slow and the tendon can start um, adapting to that really quickly and start behaving really um, beneficially. But as soon as you introduce speed, um, you want to make sure that's really, really gradual and you're really paying close attention because even as body weight with really fast speed um, might even trump something as simple as like a really heavy deadlift. Um, So very um very important to keep in mind mm, definitely okay can we move on to uh, your third uh your fourth point that you have written down yes so you've actually semi-spoiled this one already for me as well damn <laughs> damn, damn. It's, we it's... said at the start of the interview that you whether you want to tell me these five points to start with i said no i won't be surprised but i think just when we talk about these sort of things i get really excited and want to touch on exactly. everything that flows into my head but anyway point number four. there's no surprising you my dear but <laughs> it is it is realistic expectations and so often I get frustrated emails from people saying, oh, I'm not getting better. I've got exercises, blah, blah, blah. It's not making a difference. And then we have a session and I listen to them and I listen to where they were. And then you listen to the progress they've made over the last three months working with a physio. And I usually end up saying, I think you need to go apologize to your physio because look at where you were <laughs> and where you are now and how much progress you've made. But the problem is that progress with regards to tendinopathy takes a very long time. And it can be really disheartening if you get a day or two where it feels really bad again. Now, there's a really cool graphic that um, Adam Meekins made. You must have seen that one about how a patient expects recovery to be. And it's a nice straight line up um, from being injured to being healthy. And then how recovery really is. And it's this... (laughs) really tumbly line all around, all around. And that's exactly how recovery is for any injury. Just as you think, oh, I'm clear now, you'll have a day or two where you're suddenly painful and there will be no reason why you're painful. And to be honest, a lot of the time, it's because that area is so sensitive and it's very easy to kick off the pain signals. And you've just done something that irritated it. Um, So it doesn't even have to, one of the big fears that people um, email me with when ha- they have a flare-up in their hamstring tendons. It's like, oh, I think I've just injured the area again. I think I've made it worse. I think the tendon is dying off. Things like that because it's all stuff that they've heard. And you go, no, you've just gone and pushed on that bruise basically and made the pain flare up. It will settle down again. And usually if they then just take things easy for three, four days, they're back to normal and they can carry on with their rehab again. So it's quite important to take a long-term perspective so that you and note down what you can do on a weekly basis so that you can look back. And as long as the trend is upwards, 
it means that you're recovering. And also to get back to the point of how long you've got to do your rehab for. So we know from research and strength and conditioning that muscles take longer than eight weeks to get proper strength changes that you start seeing in them. Now, tendons take longer than that, to re longer than muscle tissue to react to strength training. So you need to follow a program for at least 12 weeks before you're going to start seeing good results. And then we did a study on Achilles tendons where we scanned the, um, the new ultrasound scanners can look at um, stiffness of a tendon. And what we saw was with the strength training, everybody's tendons improved in stiffness. And then they stopped strength training for four weeks and they came back and the tendons had lost that stiffness again. So it shows us that you have to do strength training for tendons probably for a lot longer than 12 weeks to get that, you know, strength to stay. So yes, I think it's, it's about having realistic expectations about what you can expect, how much better you can actually expect to be at this point. Sometimes the, it truly isn't the um, the progress you should have. You should be better off. So it is good to seek a second opinion if you feel you're not making a, any progress. But sometimes you also just need to realize that it is a condition that can take a long time. Very good. And one thing I do want to mention with that is the with the realistic expectations, I see a lot of clients that go through a lot of like mood fluctuations and they'll they'll hit their management plan to a T for say a week and they feel really, really good. And they're like, Oh, this is it. I've seen, it. this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Fantastic. And then they like do way too much. And then as soon as symptoms come back, their mood shifts to, Oh, it's never going to go away. I'm doomed Absolutely. to like, maybe running isn't for me. And you, you, it really takes someone to talk to them to be like, Hey, look, we did a week of really good work and you start to see results straight away. Like, there might have been small results, but they're results nonetheless. Like let's just stack one week to two weeks to four weeks and mm. make sure that we're not getting too ahead of ourselves as soon as you start seeing benefits because uh, then again, we're doing too much of a jump and that tendon starts to react. So uh, I think we mentioned timeframes a little bit. So um, working out how slow the tendon is to adapt and we're looking at maybe beyond uh, three months and what a point that you mentioned when it once it's deloaded and that stiffness um, dissipates uh, might set a realistic expectation for once you are better, maybe maintaining some uh, loading outside Absolutely. of running. So doing some strengthening maybe once or twice a week to maintain that stiffness and uh, maintain a high tolerance um, to focus on injury prevention. I think there's a, it was specifically for, patellar tendinopathy that I was reading an article the other day about best management. And as part of that guidelines with the research they've done, they've definitely said if you, um, with regards to um, basketball players and those, that lot, if you want this to stay away, you probably have to do one proper strength training session at least every single week, you know, for the rest of your life with it. And to be honest, once you at the beginning, your strength training is the bulk of your treatment. And as you run more and as you build your running mileage, you reduce the strength training to just be a core, you know, high intensity, low volume session. So your strength training doesn't mean that you're forever going to have to do three sessions a week, loads of time on it. It can actually come down to a core set of exercises that takes you 25 to 30 minutes once a week. And that's all you need to maintain it. 
But the point is, it's got to be adapted up and down at the right times. And that's why it's useful to work with somebody who can help you see when the right time is. Yeah. And also, um, what, it's good to let them know that once it, it is very hard work to build up the strength, but it's mm. quite easy to maintain that strength. Like Absolutely. once you've built up that uh, tolerance to you know, tolerate whatever you're doing, whether it's basketball or running, in order to maintain that strength, we're not focusing on gains anymore. It's super, super easy compared to mm-hmm. the effort it takes to build up that strength. Yeah, no, absolutely. Perfect. Anything we'll need to add before we go to our final point? No, I think that's about about right for expectations. I'm not going to be as surprised about um, the fifth <laughs> point because we sort no. of spoiled it, but let's yes. go through it. <laughs> but I beliefs is so important and especially with hamstring tendinopathy. So the internet is a wonderful thing because you can get so much support on there from different people. But the problem with that as well with support groups and things on the internet is that there are loads of people in there who maybe didn't have the best management or maybe have a severe case and who's not got better. So I often get people who are really frightened because of what they've read on the internet, people telling them, oh, it's never going to get better. You always have this. You'll always have that. And honestly, people, you are an individual. And nobody else can tell you what you will have for the rest of your life and how you will feel. And often you've got to look at people who's not got better or how severe their injuries was. Do they have other things going on? What was the management they got? What was the advice they got at the beginning? Um, I can also, and you've just a big belief or a thing that people fall into is when people have a flare up that they immediately transform it back to, oh, I'm going to have this pain forever. And it's not just for hamstring tendinopathies. I see that with a lot of patients with other conditions as well as I'm never going to get rid of this. And honestly, you truly will. It's just everybody will get better if you can find the right recipe. And it's just about trial and error. And if exercise alone doesn't work for you, there are always other things that can be tried. That's why it's so useful to work with a sports doc and a physio because the sports doc can add things like um, different types of injections and shockwave and all sorts. And we know that they aren't perfect cures and that they don't work for everybody. But there are so many different options out there that to say that you won't get better is a very big statement. Yeah. And it starts with a really, really good management program and seeking out the right advice and someone who says, Oh, I've had it for five years. It's never going to get any better. Oh, what have you tried in the past? And they might try like a couple of weeks of strengthening, a couple of weeks of foam rolling, um, years of stretching. And, um, it's, you, you look at their management. It's like, how about if we, uh, follow some really, really sound advice and be really, really diligent with a, um, a solid program, let's see how you're going to feel after six weeks. And um, it's easy for people to be like, I've had this five years, never going to get any better. Are there any other common beliefs that you've come across when it comes to this condition? Yes. So the other big problem is that people get fear avoidance. And I think you mentioned that under the compression point, that they believe certain movements are bad and they believe that certain things should be avoided forever. And the problem with fear avoidance is that if you then stop doing those things, you actually reduce the capacity of your body to cope with those things even more. So, to, to, and what we also know is that the body doesn't like wasting energy. So, say for instance, I want to pick up 
this book that's on my table. My body only activates enough muscle fibers and nerve endings to actually complete that task. Because if it does more, then it, it loses energy and it thinks we're going to starve. It doesn't know that I've got a pot full of food in the kitchen. So if you don't do any exercise and you just rest, your body goes, oh, well, we've got enough muscle and tendon and everything to just rest. We don't need much of that. So it starts degrading and everything becomes a little bit weaker. You have fewer, um, your cells become a little bit thinner and things. And that's what we get from total rest. So we need exercise to get the tendon strong again. But now if people believe that doing exercise will cause them more pain, they tend to avoid it. So then the pain actually becomes worse. So for some of my patients, my biggest battle is often to get them to trust me enough that they start doing exercise. And to be honest, it's not a question of mind over matter with this type of thing, because we, with this type of thing, your subconscious is now on high alert to try and prevent you from doing anything that it believes is dangerous for you. So if you, with your conscious mind, is going to think, right, I'm going to follow Mareka, I'm going to do her program, I'm just going to do this now, and you do it to a point that actually scares you, your pain will feel worse because your alarm system will kick off. So the way to break this belief system of your subconscious down is to slowly prove to it that it's okay. So usually we start very gently and we start with movements that just makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about uncomfortable in the tendon, a bit unsettled emotionally, that it, it's just on the verge of what you're comfortable with. Because you know what? If we repeat that often enough, and every time that it's okay and you see that it's okay, you become comfortable with that and that becomes your new normal. So then we can push that again a little bit and we can make you do things that you now at your new level a bit uncomfortable with. And it's amazing to see how people grow in confidence and how sometimes it takes a couple of weeks, sometimes it can take six weeks for people to just kind of get through that process of what breaking that fear of movement. And once we've broken that, then I usually have the other problem of holding them back a little bit. <laughs> so many points there that I want to discuss. It ties in really well with um, this last episode that I had published with Kevin Mags and we we're addressing the um, beliefs around knee osteoarthritis and how people get so wound up when they, yes. um, well, a lot of people think, oh, it's bone on bone, it's wear and tear, I can't run, I am doomed for the rest of my life, this is going to get worse and worse and uh, I need a um, knee replacement and when they uh, start an exercise if they start exercise on their own and that increases mm. pain they immediately have this belief okay pain uh, well e increased exercise equals pain therefore I shouldn't exercise at all mm. and mm. Um, they say if a lot of exercise causes a lot of pain maybe a little bit of exercise will cause a little bit of pain but no exercise is fine but their that um, belief is ingrained and it can be quite detrimental for the prognosis of the condition uh, but then you're tapping into like the the pain science of things and I did do a little mini series earlier in the podcast around chronic pain and how uh, the brain is producing the pain and certain anxieties and certain fears and worries tend to amplify the pain signals and like you were saying we're sort of um, addressing the same point from two different philosophies but uh, just trying to calm down and settle down that anxiety can Absolutely. also manipulate um, pain signals from the brain. And so it's a very delicate uh, approach for those type of people that are very wound up and very fearful of certain activities and movements. Um, but you do need to be very careful with how you approach it and very patient. 
Yes, because especially at the beginning when um, I actually listened to those podcasts of yours, I think it's really useful, those topics. Um, I, at the beginning, when I try to explain to people about how the brain could create pain that shouldn't be there, I often got misunderstood and they thought that I, I thought the pain was just in their head and they were making it up. And that's yes. not at all how it is. Yeah. It's, it's literally, you do not have control over that. It's your alarm system and your alarm system is distrustful of your conscious brain. So <laughs> it's, you don't have control over it. You've got to prove to it slowly through proving to it that little things are okay, that it is okay. The amount of clients I have come into my clinic and they're frustrated and they sit down and they're just like, um, you can tell they're a bit annoyed and they say, oh, the doctor thinks it's all in my head. Yes. And if someone with a chronic pain um, that's told that is probably, they get very defensive. They're like, they interpret that message to be like, they think I'm making it up. Whereas yes, absolutely. Uh, the, just the way they go about and the way you need to communicate that message um, needs to be done a little bit more delicately. And I think for a GP just in the, the quick sessions that they have and the, um, the stuff they've been told around chronic pain, just to say that it's all in their head probably isn't the best way. It needs a really <laughs> uh, patient, like drawn out way of carefully explaining um, the way the pain actually works. Yeah, and it, it nearly takes about three sessions because you'll, you'll think, oh, I did it really well this time. And then yeah. they'll come back with questions the next time where you go, oh, you didn't quite get it, did you? <laughs> no, because pa- like that, those sort of beliefs, they're, they're so ingrained into people. And even yes. like I'll have someone with knee pain and I'll explain that if um, it's not due to their biomechanics or maltracking of their knee. And like I'll say, look, we're not, I'll try and make sure I de-threaten a lot of the language that yes. I use. And at the end of or at the end of the session or the next time I see them, they're like, yeah, so what you're telling me is my kneecap's falling out of place and just, <laughs> the, the way they're interpreting it is like yes. the total opposite. And I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we all do that. <laughs> yeah. They are physios, physios kicking themselves 24 hours of the day. <laughs> um, that was a very, very good point. And so anything else we need to touch on when it comes to beliefs? Just that even if you don't know how to change your belief, that, yeah, just just be aware. Even if you can just be aware of things that, that you think may be standing in your way, the first step is to, if you can identify those, then you can start working on them. But yeah, that's, I think I've said enough there. Yeah. And a, a very good segue to addressing beliefs is um, finding the right type of information and mm-hmm. making sure that you're getting your information from a very sound wise person. And so, um, Mareka, is there any social media platforms that they can go to? Cause you do deliver a lot of, uh, content, <laughs> a lot of really useful content. I've got your, um, Facebook group here, which is sports injury advice. Oh no, sports injury advice and support. And then yeah. your website is sports injury physio.com, which I'll include the links in the show notes anywhere else. People can go to find your content. Um, yep. If you so the sports are uh, the the Facebook group is quite useful because you can ask questions there, and it's not just me answering them. There are quite a, a lot of other knowledgeable people in there. But yes, you can find all my videos on YouTube. The channel is Sports Injury Physio again, um, which is quite useful because you can search for the different topics. So if you've got different injuries, I've I've probably done a video about that there. I am on Twitter, but I'm not 
very good at tweeting. It it <laughs> overwhelms me to see so many messages come in so quickly. So I much prefer if, if you want if you've got any questions, just email me or message me on Facebook. I'm pretty pretty good at getting back to those. Okay, I'd suggest like yeah, Facebook is a very good one because. Um, you've got your advice and you can follow some posts and just keep up to date as well. It's a very good way of getting notifications and staying up to date. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and just for the fact that I wanted to do uh, a topic with you and we chose proximal hamstring tendinopathy and the fact that you um, had the, the ability to go back to all the previous lessons and say, okay, this is what we haven't covered. This is, this will be new, exciting stuff for your, your audience for you to actually do that is a testament to, uh, your, the hard work that you do and the, uh, the increased quality and like all that sort of stuff that you put out there. So, um, I really want to thank you for taking the time, doing all your videos, sharing the right type of advice to runners and anyone else who's injured, who might be a bit misguided. Um, and so, yeah, thanks very much for coming on and sharing. Oh, it's a very big pleasure. I really actually enjoyed it, Brody. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.